I ask you to turn once more to two of Paul's writings. The first is in First Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5. First Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator, that's the go-between, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's why two weeks ago we talked about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody tell you, we're only one real man. He really come to this earth like us and have our limitations. Yes, he did. Except for a sin nature. Yeah. He was just like you and just like me. He got hungry. He got tired. He got sleepy. He got thirsty. He got weepy. Just like us. And then back up to the book of Colossians. Chapter 2. Verse 9 says of Christ, in Him, that is in Christ, not you, not me, not anybody else, but in Christ, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Anything that could be displayed, demonstrated in the form of a man who was really God. Looked just like, but he wasn't the same thing. You know, this world is full of wannabes. And this world is full of challenges. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait to hear about Superman. A man from another planet. And he can fly and he can bend metal and do a lot of amazing things. You know, Superman's still in our ethos, if you will. Well, time Marsh and I married, they, they advertised their version of Superman. You'll believe that a man can fly. Well, i got news for you. Men can't really fly unless they're in airplanes or helicopters. But it's a fantasy. It's a man who somehow has a power. He's still a man. Even Superman could die. And then there was Spider-Man. Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive spider and he has these powers, but he's still a man. We have to remember that Christ was more than a man with a little bit of smarts, a little bit of strength, a little bit of step. No. He was man fully man. But he was also God. Not someone who wanted to be God. Someone who had notions and was in a training program. Fully man. Fully God. Now, if you think you fully understand that with your brain, you're smarter than I am. But you know what? Would you really want to worship a God that you got all figured out? 
But God, you got to, oh, by the way, God, this is going on in my life. Sometimes when people pray, I think they think I got to keep God caught up. The guy on the news will say, let's get you caught up on what's going on. We don't catch the Lord up. We don't give him a reminder or anything like that. He doesn't need an alarm clock. He just slumbers no sleep. He doesn't get forgetful. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he has done. He knows what he shall yet do. Sometimes we're confronted with things that boggle our mind and we, we say, I just can't reconcile that. We hear proposition A. Bible teaches that. Okay, got that in my head. And then there's proposition B. Okay, I got that in my head. But you know what? Uh, I can't put them together. I don't understand that. You know what? There are some things reason won't help you with. My old mentor used to say, I still don't understand. And I think to his dying day, he still didn't understand how a brown cow under a blue sky could eat green grass, give white milk to make red-haired boys' cheeks rosy. Think about it. Boggles the mind. But I want to remind you of the father of faith, Abraham. You know what the scriptures tell us about Abraham? First of all, God told he was Abram, changed his name to Abraham, which means father of not just a nation, but many nations. And he said, I am going to give you a very special son. Not a servant. Not an adopted one. But one from your very loins. Not even Isaac. Or Ishmael. But it was indeed Isaac. And so Isaac. So much hangs upon the life of Isaac. Through Isaac, God says, I will do some wonderful things. And so here was this child of promise. Isaac comes in the world, and Abraham was excited like he never had been. Now, I don't know at what age Isaac was when this happened, but in the 22nd of Genesis, it tells us that God, after he gave Proposition A through Isaac, the world's going to be blessed. Now he gives Proposition B in Genesis 22. Somebody was reading about Genesis 22 not long ago. And that's great. Like the man told me, that's what he's preaching on this morning. That's, that's great. In Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham. And he says, I want you to take your son. Well, you know, I've got a lot of folks around me. Get over 300 servants at one time in his camp. I bet a lot of them were males. But that's not what he says. The Lord is specific. He said, take your son, your only son. Only? What about Ishmael? No. As far as God's concerned, for this purpose, you've only got one son. He calls him by name, Isaac, the one you love. Okay, I know exactly who you're talking about, Lord. Take Isaac, 
Take him to a place I will show you. Sacrifice him to me. I'm sure those were part of Abraham said, anything but that. Let me, let my life be forfeit. Now you know what we tend to do? We hear A, I like that. We hear B, I'm not so sure. Growing up, one of my brothers, when he got a gift, it was something, that not that not. We got socks, that not mine, that not mine. Sometimes we're like that with the Lord. We try to tell him, well, I'll take this, but I don't want that. What did Abraham do? I want you to look at Romans chapter 4. What does God tell us about what was going on in the mind and the heart of Abraham? Romans chapter 4, okay. We start reading at, uh, yes, verse 17. Because it's talking about Abraham here. As it is written, I am made thee a father of many nations. That's what Abraham means. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead. Do you know what the word quicken means? Makes alive. How much hope is there when they go, someone goes to the hospital and they have maybe a doctor's appointment or maybe a surgery or some other procedure? But then how much hope is there when the person goes to the mortuary? And not any hope of talking with that person after that. God is one who quickens, who touches those who have no hope, no life, no prospect. Even God who quickeneth them and calleth those things which be as though they were. What did he name him? Abram? Father of a great nation? I don't have any kids. And then down the road, he's got Ishmael, the father of many nations. How does that work out? Because God knows your future. God knows what you're going to become. He is preparing his precious people. And right now, a lot of question marks. Not maybe as many exclamation points. But by faith, we have this anticipation. And God speaks of those things which are not as though they were. He's got the power. He's got the procedures. He's going to make it happen. And so what else to say about Abraham? Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. He knew God had said that. So he remembers prospect A. Alright? He's living with that. And in that. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. He wasn't a young feller. He was a hundred when Isaac was born. Like it says here, when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. You know, after a while, a woman gets to the point where she doesn't have to look to 
get baby clothes for herself because she knows I'm not going to be making any more booties for my kiddos because it's past that time. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He went, I don't get it. How did God do that? Why would God do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, wouldn't it be good if there was a Bible verse that said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lead not your own understanding. And what if we want to say, in all my ways acknowledge Him? That'd be a great verse, wouldn't it? Does that sound like anything you know? How about Proverbs 3, 5 and 6? We quote it, we know it, we should show it, we should live it. So here's Abraham, prospect A. Wow! I'm as good as dead, so Sarah, and yet we're going to have a son, and God's going to work great things. Now look to me in Hebrews chapter 11. We call this the faith chapter, and for good reason. See what is done in faith, by faith, through faith, by so many in this chapter. But for now, let's just think. Again, go to verse 17 of Hebrews 11 this time. What's it read? We talked about the A, having the Son, through whom there be a great nation. But what about the B? By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. In his mind, he knew this is what God told him to do. In his pack, he had a knife. He had rope to bind the sacrifice. He had fire. And interestingly, on the way to the top of the mount, son Isaac asked Papa Abraham, he says, Father, where's the animal? And Abraham said a mouthful when he said, God will provide himself. How do you wrap your mind around that? I think many of us would say, now wait a minute, God said, A, I'm going to have a great nation. And now he says, B, sacrifice him. I can't accept both of those, so I'm going to go with this. And I'm going to see if I can find a loophole in that. That's what we do a lot. We look for loopholes. I know what God said, but I'm not used to thinking that way. I'm not used to doing that. You know what? God's Word speaks pretty clearly. And we're supposed to think as He thinks and speak as He would have us to speak and feel as He would have us to feel and to do as He would have us to do. <coughs> That's something that we sometimes have a hard time swallowing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up in his mind, his muscles were ready to plunge that dagger into the heart. And I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but when they'd sacrifice an animal, they wouldn't just let a little bit of blood drip out. They would puncture the heart. The creature would bleed out. 
And then they would take the carcass and they would burn it. Once you got through sacrificing that creature, there wouldn't be anything left but maybe some ashes, maybe the scent of smoke. That's the sort of faith Abraham had. The same God who gave life and told him to take it. How are those two? How am I going to reconcile those two? You know what? That's God's business. We want to play God sometimes. We don't make very good gods. If God said do this, we ought to do that. And if God said do this, we ought to do that too. They're both true. And when you say, well, I don't get it. You don't have to get it. God's got you covered. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Doubt would say, I can't do that because of this. God said both. The world said, you're crazy. You're, think about it. That's not reasonable. We walk by faith. Sight. Look at verse 19. The only way that Abraham could make sense out of it is wrapped up here in this verse. Accounting that God was able to raise him up. If God said this about Isaac, that's so. If God said I was to do this with Isaac, that's so. God has the power. God's got it covered. And God in His wisdom, God in His resources, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. The young woman was told what God was going to do in Luke chapter 1. And the angel says, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And so, in his mind, he'd already plunged the dagger in. But at the last moment, his hand is stayed. But as far as he was concerned, he was set to follow through. Brother, sister, that's faith. That's what he had. According to God, was able to raise him up even from the dead. If I have to take this boy's life and burn his body till it's nothing but ashes. God told me to do that. And God has the power. God has the plan. God has the purpose. Do you trust that kind of a God or are you only going to trust a God? you got to figure it out. you got to put it down on a piece of paper. i got to draw a picture. Say, this, this is God. i got it all figured out. Oh, you don't. I don't either. From whence also he received him in a figure. I'm sure that Abraham's faith was such he knew. Just like Job said, he knew that his body was going to decay. The worms would eat what was left of his physical. Yet, my eyes and not another's. I'm going to see God. He knew there was something beyond this life. 
all the psychology and all the philosophy in this world comes up wanting when we deal with the most <coughs> important issues. And so, folks, when we think about the humanity of Christ, there were people, the Gnostics, who said, I don't believe that. You believe it anyway. God was manifested in the flesh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. And then there are other people, well, Jesus wasn't really God. He was a man with great power, with great insight. Don't believe that. Either. He was God. The Arians came along a few centuries after the Lord and said, well, he was part of the creation. No, he's the creator. He's the one who made all things. He's the one who maintains all things. I don't get it. If he was man and he was God, how does that work out? Some people have come up with an idea that well, you know, he kind of took turns. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he was man. And Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, he was God. And I don't know how it works out on Sunday. You know, you pitch something in a corner real quick when you try to explain the nature of God. And especially the God-man. Some people suppose, well, he was a man up to a point, and then once he was baptized, then he became God. No, no. He was always man. And he was always God. Theologians have gone to great trouble to come up with some fancy terms. So if you ever hear somebody use the word hypostatic, not hypodermic, the hypostatic union, that's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus Christ was 100% man at the same time he was 100% God. Now he's a little preacher. I can't figure that out. Oh, I can't figure it out either. It's not what I figure. It's faith. Just like Abraham. We're called children of Abraham. That means we ought to think like Abraham and follow in his footsteps. So we see Jesus Christ a man but also God. That's what our texts make it very clear. And you say, well, I don't get it. It's not been fully revealed to me. That's why we speak of it as a mystery. Paul said in that passage, 1 Timothy 3, 16, great is the mystery of godliness. We say it by faith. We rejoice in a great God. So why? So powerful. There's a passage that we cite from time to time, and we don't need to get far from it. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55. I think a lot of you know where my mind's going on this. Our puny little brain. One man I used to listen to on the radio said, God's got a bigger mind than your little peanut shell brain, my little peanut shell brain. Look at verses 8 and 9 once more in Isaiah 55. This is God speaking. Let's just compare God with man. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
Well, what are you saying, Lord? You mean to say that we don't always think the same way? We're not on the same frequency? Same level? Same intensity? Not even close. How far apart? You know, if you're sitting right next to somebody, you know, I'm not too far from there. If they're in the next pew, if they're in the next town, the next state, the next continent, some other planet, anywhere else, you say, well, there's a distance between us. How great is the distance between the mind, the thoughts, the intent of God and ourselves? It's a good question. Even better, we have a good answer. First thing, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So don't think you can reduce God to a simple formula. People said Einstein was a genius because he said E equals MC squared. I had a physicist tell me, we don't even today have a way to really check out whether Einstein was right or not. We just take it by faith because after all, any guy who never combed his hair and had a messy desk had to be pretty smart or something. But how do we understand this? I have a suggestion. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because we're talking about Christ here. How could it be God and man at the same time? And what does that mean to us? We talk about Christ as a great creator. Christ the great builder. He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It means he's a pretty solid builder. What he builds is going to fizzle out. It's not going to rumble and tumble and fumble and stumble and bumble and all those other fumbles. Ain't going to happen. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. I think that when Paul talks about the church that Jesus built, he uses a couple of images. And I think one helps us to understand the humanity of Christ and one helps us see the deity of Christ. I could be wrong but it makes sense to me. Okay, If you could come up with a better scriptural solution, I'm game to hear it. But right now it's my turn to talk. Now therefore you're no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now what else does it say about us? As Paul writes to these in Ephesus. And you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. In whom all the building fitly framed together grow unto a holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are built together the habitation of God through the Spirit. Think of a temple. The first thing you have is a foundation. 
Without the foundation, you don't have much of a house. Even the kiddos have sing the song about the wise man built his house on a rock. It had a solid foundation. But the foolish man just built it on the sand. And in sunny days, it was okay. But when the rains came down and the floods came up, the one built upon a rock, a foundation that was solid and sure, it stood firm. The other one, there it goes. It's gone. Sand would just be pulled out from under it and come a tumbling down. Foundations are important. We drove by a place the other day and they had just laid the foundation the last time we saw it. And now they had something growing up from the foundation. But the foundation, if you don't have a foundation first, even I know, if you don't have a good foundation, you're wasting your money on other stuff because it's probably not going to stand too tall. It's going to be small. It's going to fall. So, there's a foundation. What is the foundation? Yes, yeah, some people, everybody knows that's Peter. Peter's the foundation. No, he's not the foundation. Who or what is the foundation? I know some people say, it's the Bible. Much as I love God's Word, that's not the foundation. There is only one foundation. Y'all know who or what that might be? You read about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul got his theology straight. He didn't get it off the cereal box or off the internet. He got it from Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, writing to the Corinthians, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. What's he talking about? He tells you right here, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Well, preacher, we were just reading over there on Ephesians. In verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Yeah, it doesn't say that the apostles are the foundation. Not the apostles, not the prophets, but it goes on to explain Jesus Christ Himself. He is the foundation, as Paul said. But it also tells us that there's a cornerstone. You see, after the foundation is laid, they have blocks, bricks, whatever. And one of them they will lay it first, usually with a lot of ceremony, because that cornerstone is laid upon the foundation and all the others are supposed to line up with that cornerstone. Christ is the foundation. He is also the chief cornerstone. I could be wrong. And if I am, well, I'm not alone. But the consensus of many, and I think they're right, is this. When we speak of the foundation, 
I think that's speaking of his deity. Because we wouldn't have anything without the deity of Christ. But in addition to his deity, he is also the chief cornerstone. All the apostles and all of us built up in that understanding. To measure from. Our standard is Christ. That's why you know, we talked in Sunday school about what would Jesus do. That's our standard. We have had wonderful people in the past. And we have wonderful people even today who are living epistles. And we thank God for them. All those who have invested time and attention in us and showed us the right way to go. But folks can be flawed. They are flawed. Only Christ without flaw. And so the best example we've ever had, the best example we will ever have, is Christ Himself. And so even if this analogy doesn't square with you, I hope you can at least get the principle in mind. Christ is the foundation. And He is also the chief cornerstone. We measure off from Him. He is the standard. Well, where do we fit in? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be finishing up there, I do believe. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter 2, 3 through 5. If so be have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone. Don't look for Jesus in the graveyard. He ain't there. Disallowed to be the men, but chosen of God and precious. What's that got to do with me? Well, Peter writes here, ye also as lively stones, living stones. There was a famous doctor in England. He studied medicine, but he also studied his Bible. He said, I'm going to take the gospel to the darkest part of Africa. And he went. And we looked at it as Americans. We say, oh, I was living stone, but he pronounced his name Livingston. David Livingston. He carried his medical bag, but he carried his Bible. And he did both to serve his God and his fellow man. He was a true living stone. He also lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, and here's where I got this other idea, and others have got this idea. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Is Christ the foundation? Absolutely. Is Christ the chief cornerstone? Absolutely. I don't get it. That's because we have little electrical brains. It's by faith. He's elect. He's precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 
We're to follow, win, lose, or draw. We know we're supposed to follow the pattern of Christ, regardless of who interprets whatever and whatever way. Later in this same chapter, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, For even hereunto we ye call, because Christ also suffered us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Again, we talked about that this morning, didn't we? We follow Jesus' example. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? It says, someone asks you a question, you want to respond, but do it in meekness and fear. You want to help somebody out, make sure that you do it with a meek and gentle spirit. I was telling how that somebody, every time they want to straighten somebody's theology out, they began by saying, you idiot. You don't win a whole lot of arguments that way. You don't bring folks around to your way of thinking. But if you could show from Scripture and say, this is what the Lord has shown me. Show them in the Scripture. Live it out. Follow the example. God, a lot of good examples of the Scripture. And of course, by far the best is Jesus Himself. What would Jesus do? There was a man and I'm getting old. I've forgotten what his birth name was. But when the Lord saved him, he read that passage where Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. The old all things become new. And so he says, if I'm a new man, I'm going to change. And so he changed his name. You know, N-E, me means new, and ander means man, like andros, anthropos. And so he changed his name to meander, which means new man. We have a friend whose name is new man, newman, but it was the same only based in the Greek. And so he realized any man be in Christ, he's a new man. And if you're a child of God this morning, guess what? Your thinker has been fixed. Your heart has been fixed. Your spirit has been brought around. You walk in newness of life. You have new priorities. You have a new master you're being following, paying attention to. And so, you're not ever going to be a God. Neither am I. Anybody that tells you such, well, there's a lot of goofy ideas going around. And like the man said, a piece of paper can lay still and let anybody write anything they want on it. But read God's Word. Hide God's Word in your heart. Take it seriously. And there's some things we can agree to disagree on and still call each other Christian. But if you disagree on who Jesus Christ was, and is and ever shall be. Comes a point we don't have anything to talk about. May we speak of and for Jesus Christ. May we think as He would have us to think. May we feel. May we walk and talk. By the way, that's the theme of camp. Walking with the Lord. Pray for this opportunity. Pray that we be examples of the right thing. So much better to be part of the solution.
part of the problem. 